So let's start off with Luke. Luke is the longest of uh, the Gospels, even though it's only got 24 chapters and Matthew has 28 chapters, it is by word count actually the longest of the Gospels. And of course it's also unique in that it's the only Gospel in the New Testament that has a sequel, that has a book that comes after it, the book of Acts. And together Luke and Acts make up a whole quarter of the New Testament. That means that the author of these texts actually has written more of the New Testament than any other single author. So Luke is a really important uh, New Testament author, a really important theologian for us to think, what does Luke think about Jesus, about what he's done, and about how we are to live in response. And let's just quickly dip through again. We'll do author date location quite quickly, and you can go back and read more detail in your notes if you want to. As with all four of our Gospels, Luke is formally anonymous. It doesn't actually tell us uh, officially who wrote it. But early church tradition is unanimous in saying it was written by a guy called, uh, by called Luke, who was a companion of Paul, so he travelled around with him on some of his missionary journeys and was a doctor as well. We also learned that about him. There are several things externally which suggest this is probably true. Luke wasn't an apostle, so he wasn't kind of a well-known, respected figure in the church. So if they had this text and they wanted to attach it to someone, he wouldn't really be an obvious choice. There's no great authority behind him, no reason for them to choose him. And also because this gospel actually tells us who it's dedicated to, a guy called Theophilus, who we'll meet in a few minutes' time, it's really unlikely that it didn't also say who wrote it. So chances are that as Luke was written, it was on a scroll, and that attached to the scroll was a label saying who had written it. For it not to say that, when it does say who it's written for, would be really odd. That means if later on someone wanted to change the name of who it was written to, they would have struggled to lie about it and to still have that unanimous tradition. So even though it's not in our text that we have, chances are Luke's name was attached to this from the very first time it was ever circulated. And this fits with what we find in the Gospel. The author says he's not an eyewitness of Jesus, but when we get into Acts, he is an eyewitness, someone who's involved in some of the missionary journeys of Paul. There's these bits where suddenly Acts changes from a narrator talking about them doing things in the third person to talking about us and we in the first person. He seems to have been involved for some of these bits, which supports identification with this guy, uh, Luke. Luke is a doctor, and there are a few bits which he's kind of added in, which might suggest he's got a doctor's interest. Little details like where Mark talks about a fever, Luke is more specific and talks about a high fever and uses a more technical term. So maybe that's evidence that it was a doctor who wrote it. And also Luke the doctor was a Gentile, not a Jew. And that fits very well with Luke's strong emphasis that the gospel is for all people, including the Gentiles, comes through hugely in Acts, as no doubt you'll know. And also he's a really good writer of Greek. He's one of the highest, kind of most polished uh, levels of Greek we find in the New Testament, which suggests a quite educated, uh, probably Gentile author. From, Luke's let- from Paul's letters, we learn that Luke travelled with Paul, uh, that he was Gentile and that he was a doctor. So all of this fits together with that. But even though he's a Gentile, he seems to really know the Old Testament, to be very uh, familiar with what Jews are wanting and hoping for. So it might be likely that he was what was called a God-fearer. That means he was someone who had a lot of respect for Judaism, maybe even went to synagogue, had read a lot of the Old Testament in Greek, but hadn't actually converted to be um, a Jew in full measure, as it were. So that might explain why he very much knows Judaism and the Old Testament, even though he is a Gentile. So probably Luke was the author. The date is really hard to decide upon, but there are two kind of uh, bookends either side. Luke almost certainly makes use of Mark, as we said in session one. So he must be writing after Mark writes, and he almost certainly writes Luke before he writes Acts. So he must be writing 
uh, in between the dates of Mark and of Acts. And scholars who studied this have given two different times. Some people think this was dated in the mid-60s, that's about kind of 30 years after Jesus dies and raises and goes to be the Father. Some people put it a bit later, after the destruction of Jerusalem in, 70, in 75 to 85 AD. Um, you can read this stuff in your own time. I'm of the mind that an early date is probably quite likely. It's very odd that Acts finishes in a very open-ended way. It finishes with uh, Paul in Rome experiencing his trial under the Romans, and we never actually hear about the results of that trial. And you kind of wonder, wouldn't Luke have put in the result of the trial uh, if he'd known it? He wouldn't want people thinking, oh, maybe this man was condemned by the Romans for being a, a revolutionary or something. He'd be likely actually to tell us, no, what happened was this or that and the other. We also find, if you read 1 or 2 Timothy and Titus, it looks like Paul was released from prison in Rome and that he went back to Asia and went to Ephesus. And yet in Acts, we find Luke uh, find Paul talking to the Ephesian elders and saying, I'm never going to meet you again. So again, if Luke had known that Paul was released and that he did go back to Ephesus, he probably would have omitted the slightly embarrassing over-emotional moment where Paul says, I'm never going to see you again and I'm really upset about that. There are also important things that happen in the 60s in early Christian history, things like the persecution by um, Emperor Nero, things like the deaths of Peter and Paul and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70, which it just seems likely Paul, uh, sorry, Luke would have mentioned uh, had he been writing after that time. So I think quite a plausible case can be made that the reason none of that is there is because Luke is writing at the very beginning of the 60s. He's writing just before Paul is released from captivity in Rome before Peter and Paul die, and that's why none of that is there. This actually means, I was thinking this week, Luke might well be earlier than Matthew. So even though we've gone Mark, Matthew, Luke, because that's kind of a traditional order, um, actually, I'm more convinced that Luke is early 60s than I know that Matthew is. There's less evidence to say when Matthew is dated. So probably written only 30 years after Jesus uh, had gone back to be the father. And then location, we really have no idea. Some people in the early church think it was written at Antioch in Syria. It's plausible, a Gentile place with a large Jewish population, which kind of explains the mixture of things in Luke's gospel. Other people uh, suggest Achaia, which is the southern region of Greece in the Roman world. Yet more people a bit later, a few centuries later, say Rome because of the link with Paul and Paul being in prison in the 60s. Basically, we don't know, but it is seemingly written to an audience of Gentiles or of God-fearers, people who know something about Judaism, but probably aren't Jews themselves. An initial overview then, it's helpful to have this big map, and with this big map in your own time, you might want to go and read the gospel and kind of see how the story flows. It's not all that easy to determine what structures Luke want to put in, but if we learn two things and combine them, we get quite a helpful way forward, I think. First is to look at how Luke has used Mark. As we demonstrated week one, almost certainly one of the sources that Luke has used is the Gospel of Mark. And as we go through Luke, we find he alternates between a large chunk of Mark, followed by some of his own material, followed by another large chunk, followed by some more of his own material. It's quite kind of uh, segmented into bits. And you can see there in your notes, there's the division there of the Lucan birth stories, then a big bit of Mark, which is all the uh, ministry of Jesus in the north in Galilee. Then this middle section, 951 to 814, is unique to Luke. Almost all of that material is not found in any of the other Gospels. It's Jesus' journey from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south. And Luke makes a really big thing about the importance of Jerusalem 
and the fact that Jesus has set his face, as he says at the start of that uh, section, to go to Jerusalem and there to suffer and die. And one of Luke's themes is about divine necessity. So when Luke looks forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus, he says it is necessary time and time again, he says, for these things to happen. And this passage, this section of Luke, seems to be talking about the necessity of Jesus going to Jerusalem and fulfilling God's plans there. Then we get to the passion narrative of the death of Jesus, which very much follows Mark closely. But then again, we go back to Luke in the resurrection accounts. But as well as looking at how he's used Mark and that alternation, we also have to remember he is uh, writing the first volume of a two-volume work. And Acts, many people have observed, follows a geographical pattern. In the beginning of Acts, Jesus tells the uh, disciples that they are to go and to spread the good news about him in Jerusalem, which is where they are, in Judea and Samaria, which are the areas kind of south and north of Jerusalem, and then out to the ends of the earth. And if you read through Acts, you can actually follow that progression. They start in Jerusalem, the middle chunk of chapters 8 to 12 is in Judea and Samaria, and the last chunk is to the end of the earth, i.e. the rest of the Roman Empire, ending up in Rome, the very centre of the known world at the time. When we go back to Luke's Gospel, it's actually quite likely, it seems that he has used the same geographical structure, but he's used it in reverse. So whereas uh, Acts starts in the middle and works out, Luke ends in the middle and has gradually worked in from the outside, which gives us what we call a chiastic structure, which means you've got these concentric circles moving in and in until you get to the centre. And that means the thing at the centre, normally, in a chiastic structure, is really, really important. And at the very centre, in this case, is the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And in Luke's theology, the death of Jesus is really important, but also he places a big importance on Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. So it seems that actually the structure goes right across these two books. And you'll see in the box or the uh, table there in your notes that if we combine this structure with the alternation between Mark and Luke, we get a fairly good idea for what Luke is doing. It starts off, this is the weakest part to be fair of the thesis, it starts off with the um, birth narratives which cover Jerusalem, Galilee, Judea, Bethlehem and regions around the Jordan, a bit of everything. But also it's the only place in Luke where uh, Luke really carefully roots Jesus in the Roman world, where he tells us who the emperors were and who the governors were and the Roman officials at the time of different events. It seems that even though it's in lots of geographical locations, he's very much saying this is rooted in the Roman Empire of the day. And then we come into the first main section, which is all in Galilee. Uh, it's Jesus' Galilean ministry, very similar to that first chunk of Mark's Gospel. The question of Jesus' identity is a key, key theme. Uh, there's lots of demonstrations of Jesus' power and his authority, both through healing and through his teaching. And there's some teaching. More so than in Mark, we do get teaching. And this would be equivalent on that chiastic structure, the concentric circles, to the end of the earth. Now, of course, this is still uh, Jewish territory. This isn't the Roman Empire. This isn't the Gentile world. But actually, it's worth noting that of all the areas in Palestine at the time, up in the north, in Galilee, was the most Gentile area. And even as early as the book of Isaiah, Galilee can be called Galilee of the Gentiles. There was such a strong Gentile presence there that it made its way into his name. And Matthew himself actually quotes that. So we know that for this whole period of history, there were lots of Gentiles in the north, not just Jews. So even though Jesus never ministers outside of the Jewish world, actually Luke is placing that first part in a kind of quasi-Gentile, end-of-the-earth context. And then we have this middle section unique to Luke where he's journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem. 
with lots of Jesus' teaching in this, lots of unique teaching, lots of parables that we only find in Luke's Gospel. He talks about discipleship. There's quite a bit of conflict and opposition, as we find in all the Gospels. He talks about Christian living and about the nature of Jesus' mission. And at the beginning of that section, as I said, there's this statement that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, a statement only found in Luke's Gospel. And it's very much so the whole geographical scheme of this section is about moving to Jerusalem. And the only locations given are Samaria, talks about being in Samaria and by Samaria, and talks about being in Judea. So again, we've got that middle part, Jerusalem, Judea, ends of the earth. We've had the ends of the earth. Then we've got Judea and Samaria. And then we reach the last week of Jesus' life, which happens in and around Jerusalem. And it's very similar to what we've seen in Mark, what we've seen in Matthew. We have Jesus entering the city, uh, pronouncing judgment on the temple. We have him in conflict with the religious authorities. Then the Last Supper, prayer in Gethsemane, and the arrest, followed by the trials, the crucifixion, death and burial, burial, and the resurrection. And what's particularly notable about Luke is whereas the other Gospels, they are, uh, the disciples are told to go back to Galilee to meet Jesus when he's raised from the dead. In Luke's Gospel, the only resurrection or uh, visitations we have happen in Jerusalem. And the Gospel ends with the disciples still in Jerusalem, praising God in the temple. Luke has deliberately chosen not to follow what Mark did by leaving the people in Galilee, but actually to leave or go into Galilee, but by leaving them in Jerusalem, which strongly supports this idea that his geography, staying in Jerusalem as a central point, is kind of the key aspect of this structure. So we've gone this journey of starting in a Gentile territory in the north, moving from Judea and Samaria to Jerusalem, and then Acts will take us from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria again, and then out into the whole world. And I think that is the best way of understanding how Luke has put together these two volumes. Within each of these sections, there are some themes, but actually Luke isn't in many ways a thematic author. He uh, brings a lot of things together within this structure, but often, not randomly quite, but he's not like Ma uh, Matthew. We had those huge chunks of teaching, but actually his teaching is much more spread out. So it's harder as you go through to think, well, why is that next to that? Well, that broad picture hopefully gives you a bit of help. We're going to dive into Luke then to look at some of the key landmarks. But before we do that, we want the Holy Spirit to come and help us. We said week one, uh, we can't do this on our own. So let me pray for us before we do that. Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word to uh, learn about you, to learn all that you did when you were on the earth, to learn who Jesus is, why he came and what he's achieved. And we just ask now as we read Luke's gospel together, would you come and bring illumination to our hearts? Come and give us wise minds to understand your word. Come and speak your truth to us. Come and challenge us and change us and uh, shape us. And would we go away from here having encountered you, learnt more about you, uh, learnt more of what it is to follow you and uh, loving you more. We ask Holy Spirit, come and help us this evening. Amen. Luke is unique among our four Gospels in that he starts with a literary preface, a very formulaic way of starting a text. And it's very like uh, people in the Greco-Roman world would have been used to. They would have picked it up, read these first verses, and felt it was very familiar from what they were used to reading in different things. People have pointed out it's very much like you get in Greco-Roman history. So Luke's saying he's writing history. It's also actually quite like what you get in Greco-Roman scientific writings, which again might support the idea that this man is a doctor, but also hints at the fact he's being very precise. He wants to give us precise details to what he's saying. As we looked at in session one, he starts by revealing the fact he's not an eyewitness. So he wasn't actually there when these things took place. 
but that he has talked to people who are eyewitnesses. He has um, read accounts that have already been written. He's done lots of thorough research, basically, to make sure that everything he is saying is accurate. And then, following his research, he decided to write his own account, his own gospel, for this guy, Theophilus. And there are two important things that he says in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, so done all this research for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Orderly account probably means he's compiled the different bits of material he's got, the different stories, the bits of teaching, to make a narrative which is kind of persuasive which takes you on a journey to persuade you of something. It probably doesn't mean chronological, because we know when Luke uses the same word in Acts, he doesn't mean chronological. When Peter um, has his encounter with Cornelius, Luke tells us the account of what happens, and then he tells us the account of Peter's relaying of what's happened to the other Jewish leaders. And he says that Peter's relaying is orderly, the same word here. And yet the order of events in the two accounts Luke gives are different which means he's probably saying, I've put this, I've compiled this together in a way to help you uh, see the flow to be convinced, rather than to put it in a chronological order. But then we've got to ask, who is this Theophilus? Who is it actually being written to or written for? Well, it's a fairly common name, and the title, most excellent, is kind of an official Roman title, but could also just be Luke being polite. This may be a, a real Roman official, it may just be a polite way of addressing him. His name actually means lover of God. So some people have said, well, maybe this is kind of symbolic for Christians in general. It's a really appealing idea, but it's quite implausible in the ancient world. No one would really have understood that that's what Luke was doing. So this seems to have been um, a real individual in the ancient world. He must know something about Jesus. He must know something about Christianity, because Luke's writing to convince him of what he's already heard but it's not actually clear whether he is or isn't actually a Christian at this time. It probably does mean that he was in some way involved in the writing of the text. So either he has funded Luke to write this uh, narrative, or Luke's uh, interactions with Theophilus have made him think, oh, it would really help this guy if I put together this narrative for him. And then in verse 4, Luke tells us that his reason for doing this is to give to Theophilus certainty about what he's already learned. So he's probably not actually being evangelistic because Theophilus has already heard a lot of this, but he is trying to give him certainty, trying to give him a well-researched basis for all of this and a clear account of it. And many people, partly because of this, partly because of the shape of Luke and Acts, think that Luke has an apologetic purpose. That means that he's writing to answer uh, kind of questions and maybe challenges that were coming against um, the Christians. And it does seem likely that Luke is writing, he's writing to Romans in a world which was uh, kind of quite suspicious of Christianity, where Christianity wasn't really understood. Their leader had been executed. He doesn't seem to be a violent revolutionary, and yet he was executed as a violent revolutionary. And there was lots of question marks. Are these people good citizens? Are they not? Are they deserving of death? Are they not? And so Luke seems to be writing to say, no, no, Jesus wasn't a violent revolutionary, and Jesus is not um, at war with the Roman Empire. And so he's apologetically saying the Christians should be allowed kind of, to live in peace and to practice their faith. And the exact nature of this apologetic really turns on whether Theophilus is or isn't a Christian. If Theophilus is not a Christian, then Luke is writing to show high-status Romans that Christianity isn't a threat to the empire and that they should just let the, the Christians get on with it and live their lives. If he is a Christian, then Luke is writing to him saying you don't need to worry about there being any conflict between being a Roman and being a Christian. 
He's saying you've not got to worry that this faith you've now committed to is somehow in competition or trying to overturn the Roman Empire. He's saying actually this is safe. And he's also trying to say the fact that the leader of this faith was executed on a Roman cross does not mean that in any way he is um, uh, kind of to be or does not invalidate the claims that he made. And so we'll see that a bit. We won't draw it out an awful lot because although it is important for understanding Luke, uh, in our context, in a sense, it's less important. But you can very much trace through Luke and things he says. Particularly, we will see it in the Passion narrative. And then especially when you get to Acts, it's very clear that Luke is trying to say, no, no, these guys are good guys and they are not trying to cause trouble, basically, in the Roman Empire. From his preface, Luke jumps into his infancy narrative. Just like Matthew, when he read Mark, he felt there was a lot missing as to his research and found out about the birth of Jesus and about the early life of Jesus, and yet gives us a very different account to Matthew. Not contradictory, just actually some different stories, which is a good argument for suggesting that Luke didn't know Matthew. If Luke had known Matthew or vice versa, you'd expect them to bring their Christmas stories together a bit, but they don't do that at all. But as in Matthew, they're really important because they give us our first clear introduction to who Jesus is and what he's going to do. Remember we said last week that people in the ancient world are deemed very static. How you are born, the circumstances of your birth and the things people say about you are very revealing of what your life is going to be like. And I think Luke, very much part of this apologetic thing, he gives us ideas in the infancy narrative, but often doesn't give us a lot of detail, which we're going to see. And then he uses the rest of the narrative in his gospel to give flesh, as it were, to shape the detail that he gives in his initial chapters. And these whole chapters are very much in the key of the Old Testament. The preface we just looked at is very much in a Greco-Roman, very high literary level style. As soon as we jump to these characters, it feels like you're in the Old Testament. There are clear echoes to stories like um, Hannah and Samuel, the birth, of, um, yeah, the birth of Samuel and different things that happen. There are uh, quotes he does and different things he says. Even the type of Greek he uses, as you read it, you feel like you're reading the Greek Old Testament rather than reading the rest of Luke's Gospel. He's deliberately using language which makes you feel like you're in that whole world. So we're going to break the section, uh, break the story up a bit. And likewise, we break into groups to tackle different parts. Just read the passage in your group, have a quick discussion of the questions, and then we'll feed back together and see what we find. Uh, who had the first one? Was that this group down here? It was you. It was you. Uh, fantastic. Jesus' birth foretold. So here we are starting. If you want to follow, we're in verse 26. Luke's infancy narrative is a lot longer, which is why we're not doing it all. Um, verses 26 to 38. How is this promised child described and what is he going to do? Hmm. Excellent, yep. Means God saves, yep. Definitely, yeah. Which Luke doesn't draw out, but Matthew does, but it's still definitely significant. Sorry? Yes, it, in a sense, it does to us now. God saves has a lot more significance to Jesus, but it's the same name as Joshua. So, obviously, Joshua in the Old Testament isn't God come down, but we know the deeper significance. Yep. That holy thing. Where where's that? What verse? Thirty five. Thirty five. 
Wonderful. Yeah. Okay, you call that holy thing. Um, Oh, excellent. Well, I've probably got a lot to learn from Scott, I'm sure. Uh, what's it said that this child is going to do? Mm, excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will gift him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Which links to the second question. You look at these Old Testament passages and see how they, roll, they shed light on the identity of this child. What do Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 particularly talk about? Oh, did you? Oh, fine, fine. I'll quickly fill in the gaps then. Um, so these are some of the prophecies in the Old Testament about the fact that the deliverer who would come would be a Davidic king. There's going to be a king coming from the line of David, and he will though be a king who will reign over all things for all of time. So when um, Luke is saying these things about this child, that he's going to be given the throne of his father David, he's going to have this kingdom of which there'll be no end, ears are meant to perk up and you're meant to think, oh, that's the promise made to uh, David in 1 Samuel 7. Oh, that's what he's said in Psalm 2 about this deliverer king who's going to come in the future. Which means, what's really interesting about this, if we think about the Old Testament background, is there's nothing said about how this is going to happen. And remember, I think back to week two, most people are expecting the Davidic king is going to come, he's going to be a warrior, he's going to kill the Romans, he's going to get rid of them, he's going to establish an earthly kingdom. There's nothing here, actually, to suggest that that's not true. All Luke is saying is he's coming to fulfill these promises. He leaves completely blank and open the question of how this is going to happen. And I think that the way Luke structures his gospel is that he gives us lots of these clues in the infancy narrative of what Jesus is going to do and very little about how he's going to do it. And the rest of the gospel is filling in those gaps, as it were, uh, explaining how it is that this is going to happen. Mary is so excited about this that she goes off to see her cousin Elizabeth, at which point she sings a song. Was that you guys in the back corner? This is the Magnificat. If you ever spent any time in more traditional churches, this is sung every day at Evensong at different services. It's a very well-known uh, hymn in the Bible. What does Mary's song tell us about the mission of Jesus? What's he going to do? Excellent. 
really good. You've nicely captured all kind of three things in this song. It's a kind of interesting mix. It's this wonderful joy, joy filled, you know, overflowing. These chapters are full of joy in these spontaneous songs. And it starts with this wonderful thing about Mary praising God and her spirits rejoicing because she's really humble and there's nothing special about her, but God's chosen her to use her. It's all this wonderful, um, quite kind of sweet stuff. And then we get, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of a humble estate. Uh, he's filled the hungry good things, but the rich he sent away. There's this idea of reversal of fortunes, that things are quite bad for those who are very fortunate and are rich and are uh, proud, but things are really good for those actually who are humble. But it's quite kind of strong language, actually. There's going to be this great reversal of fortunes. But then also, really good, Ben, you picked up that key bit at the end. This all happens because he's helping his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Again, this song is telling us, Luke is telling us through this song, this all links back to that long story, remember the timeline, back to those promises made to Abraham, which we're still waiting to be fulfilled. And he's announcing in this baby, Jesus is fulfilling those promises made to Abraham. <coughs> Excellent. Thank you, guys. Zechariah's song, was that you? Excellent. So what does Zechariah say that Jesus will do? Zechariah, sorry, is the father of John the Baptist. Yes. Uh, what does Zechariah say? Mm. will come um, as prophesied prophet elsewhere mm. <laughs> when he will come and rescue his people and save them from the enemy and and all those who hate us and will show mercy and um, as was prophesied in Paul excellent yep so he will be a rescuer from being held in exile and um, he's, really, he's going to do this again because it was his role was going to prepare the way mm. and he, he, he was extremely sudden out into the darkness excellent that's a really good summary yeah and again, I like the fact you picked out there the fact he's going to save us from our enemies and the hand of all who hates us. There's, again, strong language. And you could easily hear this and think he's going to come and kill the Romans, couldn't you? He's coming in fulfillment of all these promises. And there's nothing said about how it's going to happen. For all we know, he's going to come with this violent warrior. Um, but excellent. Yeah, and also that, that end bit you said, he brings to bring knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins. So there is a hint here, actually, that maybe uh, there's a deeper thing than a physical. It's not just physical. He's also come to bring knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. And yeah, finishes that wonderful picture of it. it is light coming into the darkness. Very good, thank you. Um, birth of Jesus, that the middle group. How does, we are beginning chapter two now. How does Luke describe the time of Jesus' birth? Why does he do this? Okay, interesting, yep. Mm -hmm. Why would Luke want to link Jesus to the Roman Empire? So he talks about the emperor uh, and Quirinius of Syria, which is the region to the north of Palestine. Yeah. I don't know the answer. Yeah, no, it's fine. Luke does do a bit of that. There are things Luke says which could be challenged to the Roman emperor. He probably does that less than Matthew, this whole thing of 
being apologetic, he's trying to show they're not a direct competition to the Romans. So he does say things which would do that, but he doesn't bring it out. I think there's two things. You're absolutely right. Luke is a historian. He cares that this stuff really happened. He cares about showing in detail when it happened that he really does know. I think the fact he talks about the emperors of the whole known world, not just the local rulers, is he's pointing to the significance of Jesus. Jesus isn't just significant for the small area of Judea where Herod is king. He's actually significant for the whole world, including uh, Emperor Caesar Augustus, including Quirinius, the governor of Syria. There's probably, uh, and that's, that's easier to know when you know Luke, and that one of his big themes is this is a big issue, you know, this is for the world, the ends of the earth, um, not just kind of for the small, small town thing. Um, and when Jesus is born, there's a big focus on what family he's part of. What was the focus and why is that important? Good, yeah. So just like at the announcement of his birth, he's linking to David. This is the fulfillment of the promises made of this eternal or this king who will reign forever. Um, this is a fun one. Where was Jesus born? Did you find any differences in translation? Oh, that's unfortunate. Anyone got the NIV? Someone want to read? Um, I'll read it first and then you can read it in your translation. So this is Luke 2 verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Someone got the NIV version? Can you read it out for us? Yeah, please do. Oh, anyone got a more modern NIV <laughs> with a different word at the end? Sorry. Does it have a different word at the end? Okay. The latest update of the NIV, which is what I checked, um, says guest room. Oh, good, I'm not lying. Okay, good, yeah, it says guest room. So most translations actually do say in. Some of them say guest room, which actually is a more accurate translation. This is interesting and is... Stimulating, I think, helpful. Um, in is probably a mistranslation, which starts with um, the KJV, which Neil is reading, uh, has been followed by most people since, uh, but does mean a guest room. It's the same word used later in Luke when Jesus tells two disciples to go ahead into Jerusalem to find the guest room where they will celebrate the Passover. So most ancient houses, you had your living areas downstairs, your family lived, and you had kind of, you know, the, the special room upstairs for guests. You didn't use it much, you preserved it for them. It's your best room. That's the Cataluma, where they celebrate the Passover um, at the end of the gospel. That is the word used here. And so he's saying there was no room in the guest room. What you had, um, and so, sorry, people have then thought, well, he's put in a manger, an animal feeding trough. This word must mean a kind of stable or barn or something. What you have in a house in uh, Palestine at the time, you have this one room, usually, all on one level, and then you have a bit at the end which is dipped down on a lower level. And it's in the lower level that your animals sleep. You can't afford probably an outbuilding. You need some heat probably from your animals actually. And so they live in there. And so what he's saying is there was no room for them in the room upstairs. And so they are in the family room. Because it's also absurd to believe they go to their family town and that none of their family would take them in. That is almost impossible in a culture of this type. They were so uh, hot on hospitality they would not have turned their family members away. So Jesus is there in the kind of messy, noisy, normal family room, not in the nice guest room upstairs. And the only space, because it's probably quite crowded, is with the animals or within a manger, which is in this separate part of the room. The reason why I think this is actually worth knowing is not just to shatter all our picturesque uh, ideas of the Christmas story, 
but actually it does make Jesus more relatable. I found this really helpful when I read this a few years ago. If Jesus is born in an inn, or oh, no, in a stable, you know, the back of an inn, it is kind of unlike any of our experiences. He's immediately different. His coming into the world is different and other and separate. The equivalent, really, of Jesus being born uh, in the family room of the Palestinian house is basically Jesus being born in, you know, the one room, the one living room, a one-bed council flat um, in Honington. It is Jesus right in there with the people. Jesus right in there with those who maybe have it toughest in life, who have the least in life. It is Jesus being born right into the midst of humanity, not Jesus being separate in something that none of us have ever experienced. That's what I quite like. I think that's quite useful to know that Jesus comes, not just comes to earth and comes and shares our experience, but comes right down, is with the lowliest of the low in a small house. As we'll see, Luke has a big theme of uh, Jesus' heart for the outcasts and for the poor, and that is where Jesus is born into. Uh, and then, is there a significance in the fact that Luke's described Jesus in very exalted terms, this guy who will rule forever and ever, but then shows him being born in this very lowly situation? What might he be trying to communicate? Um, Jesus might not be trying to do justice, but it's also from the church and the kingdom side. Yeah. Excellent, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're getting all these clues. He's this guy who's going to reign forever. Maybe he's a violent revolutionary, but also actually he's coming in a very humble way, into very humble beginnings, which definitely says something Jesus we're going to see is the one who comes to seek and save the lost. And he's right in there at the very beginning with the kind of downtrodden and overlooked in society. Excellent, thank you, that group. Uh, shepherds and angels, that you guys at the back. When the angels announce to the shepherds, what do they tell us about Jesus? Wonderful. Brilliant. Brilliant, yeah. And again, we've got some immediate Lucan themes coming through, the link to David. Jesus' as saviour, salvation, is one of the biggest, probably the big theme in Luke, which we'll come to later. Uh, and for all the people, as we also said, salvation in Luke is very much for all people, not just for the Jews. Fantastic. And um, is it significant that these people are shepherds and they're the ones who come to visit Jesus? Why? <laughs> Very good. Full marks, full marks. Why do you think that is? Excellent, yeah, yeah. Spot on, yeah. Feeding this theme of Jesus' care and heart for um, the lowly people of society, whereas Matthew, you've got, you've got the Magi and you've got Herod involved as well. It's very much a regal theme, uh, kind of people at the top. Also, shepherds um, in the first, this is quite debated, but it's probably true. Shepherds in the first century in Jewish culture were very much looked down on because shepherding requires you to work seven days a week. They had to work on the Sabbath. And so to be a shepherd was to be a Sabbath breaker. And so there weren't kind of societies. Uh, most hated people, but they were to an extent probably outcasts in society. Uh, so it's significant that not only are they just quite low, lowly in general, they're not you know, important figures or royal figures, they're also probably people who were ostracised to some extent by the Jewish community. Then we have Jesus at the temple. Is that your group? Fantastic. So this is Jesus. 
yes, yeah, no, not Jesus Child. This is Jesus, um, well, this be seven days, I want to see. Come to the temple to be purified and dedicated. What is said about what Jesus will do? Excellent. That wide scope immediately. Excellent, yeah. Hmm. Really good, yeah. So lots of themes are really seen coming through. Uh, the relation to the Gentiles, the wide scope of this. Salvation, you're right, really sticks out, doesn't it? This is a key Lucan theme of what Jesus has come to do. Um, and the falling arising, this thing of reverse sort of situations, this quite strong, challenging language. And then is anything said about how Jesus is going to do this? Hinted, what are the hints? Oh yeah, I've got that. Yeah, good. Um, is that 35, yeah, there's this hint, isn't there, that something is going to be incredibly hard for Mary to witness or something like that. Really good point, yeah. And, but beyond that, there's not much said. So again, we've got these really kind of strong promises, these big things, linking back to all this prophetic stuff, but nothing about how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, at the end of it, they just go away. It's been done. But in the middle, you've got an old man and a widow who've been looking for the Old Testament fulfillment. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. The of the Messiah uh, just happen to be there both together. Yeah, yeah, time, yeah. Prophesying, and the, the bit about how will Jesus' mission be completed? It just struck me that yes. Brilliant, brilliant, yeah, yeah. That's really good, I really like that, yeah. You're totally right, Simeon and Anna, these two figures are yet more examples of these lowly people who are honoured um, in the Gospel. Yeah, yeah, and how he knows when he sees Jesus. Uh-huh. Could totally be, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Maybe, absolutely. I like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. When we get there, we'll ask him. Um, and finally, guys, who are talking about the, kind of the whole picture, big picture. Who's the one character who's prominent throughout all these chapters, and why is he so important? Sarah's the character. No. <laughs> Holy Spirit, good. Probably almost all of you in the sections you read would have had some reference to the Holy Spirit. Any idea why he might be so keen to talk about the Holy Spirit? Spot on. Yeah, definitely. He's showing that, you know, Jesus comes along, sorry. Yeah, that's, so there's two reasons it's really important. One is the Holy Spirit is a big theme for Luke. One of the reasons being the Holy Spirit is so important in Acts and in Christian life. He's showing us that's rooted in Jesus' life. And also, you're right, it kind of, it's, it's, it's uh, Jesus coming, but also the Holy Spirit very much suddenly working. 
when there's been you know, centuries of silence from God and waiting. But one of the promises of the age to come was that the Holy Spirit would be poured out, the Holy Spirit would start to act. So as soon as we hear about the Holy Spirit doing lots of work, we're meant to think, oh, God promised that when he comes to act to bring the age to come, there's going to be lots of Holy Spirit activity. It's automatically hinting this is the time, is where this is the moment. And then um, what about, we've touched on this bit already, but the significance of the type of people whom Jesus, uh, who Luke chooses to talk about. That's your one. Oh, they are the average Joe. Literally, Luke chooses the average Joe. Um, so rather than kings and wise men, magi, he chooses the average Joe, which, as we're just about to see, or we'll see in a few minutes, is very much in keeping with Luke's overall themes. Excellent. Well done, everyone. We come now to, uh, we have um, a bit about Jesus as a child, a 12-year-old, and then we come to the introduction to the adult Jesus. And we're going to skip across just for time the stuff on John the Baptist and start with Jesus' genealogy. Well, actually, we'll start at the end of John the Baptist. Verses 18 to 20 are really interesting. Jesus tells us about John the Baptist, much like Matthew does, but he brings the imprisonment of John the Baptist and the story, this is bottom of page 7, the story of John being imprisoned um, here. And whereas Mark and Matthew have a longer account about it later in the Gospel, he brings it all here. He kind of does all the stuff with John and kind of uh, puts a line underneath it, as it were, by having John imprisoned just after Jesus is baptised, and it's almost like saying that part of the story is done. And remember we said the infancy narratives are in the key of the Old Testament. You're meant to feel like you're kind of in the Old Testament. And John is a prophet and he's presented like an Old Testament prophet. He's part of that. And so Luke has deliberately chosen to narrate the uh, imprisonment of John here and to mention it no more, to kind of say, here's the line of the Old Testament ending. And that's when we then meet the adult Jesus. And to introduce us to the adult Jesus, Luke gives us a genealogy. Just as Matthew has started his gospel with a genealogy, but Luke doesn't put it right at the start. He uses it to separate this Old Testament section to now the time of Jesus. And he does a genealogy in reverse compared to Matthew's. He uh, starts with Jesus and then works back. And he doesn't just go back to Abraham like Matthew does. He actually goes all the way back to Adam, actually all the way back to God, which again is his hint that this one who has come is not just for the children of Abraham. He's not just about that. Actually, there's something right back to God. There's something of the whole scope of humanity descended from uh, Adam who are important. And then Luke gives us kind of the initial opening of Jesus' adult ministry. He describes it in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 4, not as the proclamation of the kingdom of God, which is what Mark says, is what Matthew says, uh, but actually as Jesus teaching in synagogues. And then immediately he gives us an example of Jesus teaching in synagogues, teaching in Nazareth. In verse, 13, uh, verse 16, he's teaching in Nazareth, but if we jump across to verse uh, 23, when they hear this preaching and they see Jesus, Jesus says, doubtless you're going to tell me to do the things I did in Capernaum. So Luke's saying Jesus is starting his ministry, and yet he's already been healing people in Capernaum. Luke knows this isn't actually where Jesus' ministry starts. Remember, he's not trying to write a chronological account. He's trying to write an orderly account to help us interpret what is going on. And so Luke has fronted this story in order to give us a kind of paradigm in which to understand Jesus. And that paradigm comes through the passage of Scripture that Jesus reads in the synagogue. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. We don't know if he's told what passage to read or if he chooses it himself, but he reads from Isaiah 61, the first couple of verses or parts of them, um, which is a passage which talks about God's anointed, the great deliverer who's going to come, and speaks about the nature of his mission. Notice he's a figure who's anointed. The Spirit of the Lord, he says, 
is upon me. And remember, the words Messiah and Christ mean anointed one. He's declaring to the people, I am the Messiah, the Christ. I am the anointed one. And of course, we just had the baptism of Jesus, where we see the Holy Spirit come as a dove upon Jesus, where he has been anointed uh, before our eyes, as it were. And then he comes and he says he's come to bring good news to many different groups and peoples who are the disadvantaged and who are the outcasts in society. And this is true on a material level, and we'll see Luke's heart for the poor and disadvantaged and outcasts at the gospel, but also is a deeper spiritual reality. Also, he's talking much, much like uh, Matthew does about those who are poor in spirit, about those who are imprisoned in the sense of uh, demonic activity. One of the reasons we know that is because he talks about things like he's come to proclaim liberty to the captives, um, when actually he doesn't set anyone free from prison, but he does release people from uh, oppression by demons. It seems to be from that spiritual freedom that comes. And then this passage he reads ends um, with a statement that it is the year of the Lord's favour. And this is an allusion to the Old Testament concept of the year of Jubilee, where in ancient Israel, every 50 years, all the debts were cancelled and there was kind of a resetting of things. It was a thing to help people who got into debt, help people who got into different types of trouble, would be a way of resetting things so everyone had a fair chance. And in the Old Testament and in texts after the Old Testament, that becomes developed as a picture of the redemption that God is going to bring. And so Jesus stands in the synagogue and reads this passage, declaring that um, this now is the year, not literally the 365 days, but this is the new season of God's favour modelled on that jubilee um, kind of theme. And Luke wants us to use this passage as like the lenses through which we interpret Jesus. He wants us to see Jesus now throughout the gospel as the anointed one who's coming to bring good news to all these different groups of people who are outcasts or who are uh, disadvantaged in society. But actually, Jesus hasn't done anything odd yet. He's done exactly what he's meant to do. He stood up, he's read from the scroll. But it's when he sits down to preach, which is what you did in the synagogue, that he says something different. And he declares to them there, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the people are amazed at this, but at the same time seem to lack real faith in who he is and actually in what he can do. And when Jesus sees their lack of faith and he says, surely you're going to ask me you know, for signs and miracles like I've done in Capernaum, he gives two examples of God blessing people in the Old Testament. But the two examples are both non-Jews and they're both kind of outcasts in society. One of them is um, the widow of Zarephath. One of them is Naaman, the Syrian leper. He's saying these are two examples in the Old Testament where God blessed people who weren't even Jews, weren't even part of the covenant people of God, and who weren't the kind of important high status people. Actually, they were kind of the down and outs of society. And Jesus is saying that he could have, God could have blessed comparable figures in Israel, but actually he chose not to. And he's saying if Israel reject him, as they are doing here in Nazareth, then actually God's blessing is going to go to Gentiles, not to Jews. He's saying, if you are not going to have faith in me, then people like uh, the widow of Zarephath and the um, Syrian leper are going to be the ones who receive the blessing. And we see a bit of that in Luke's gospel. We very much get that in Acts, where Luke turns up at a city. He starts by preaching in the Jewish synagogue. When the Jews don't respond to him, as most of them, uh, in most places they don't, he then and only then preaches to the Gentiles. This creates a pattern for how the story develops across the rest of the two volumes. The people really dislike what Jesus says, but he does actually manage to slip away. And so this gives us the whole framework through which we are to understand the rest of the gospel. And then for the main chunk of the gospel, let's briefly go through two 
elements of what Luke tells us. First of all, we've got Jesus as the one who seeks and saves the lost. In Luke, Jesus is the son of man who, as he says in chapter 19, came to seek and save the lost. Luke has dropped the statement in Matthew and Mark that Jesus comes um, as the ransom, uh, from the word now, the son of man came to ransom people. He drops that, but he has this as his kind of key statement of Jesus's mission. And every part of this is really important. First of all, salvation is a really key theme in Luke. And it's a fairly broad concept of salvation, as it is in the Old Testament. The word and concept had come to mean the fulfillment of all God's promises, something much broader than just being saved from punishment for sins. And so he's saying, as salvation has come, it's the fulfillment of God's promises, all this uh, end-time blessing that God had promised them. God the Father and Jesus are both described um, as saviour. And we've already seen that in those infancy narratives, Jesus is linked to salvation. There are several examples in the gospel where Luke uses the verb sozo, which means to save, but can also mean to heal or to deliver, to deliver for physical healings. We find that across all three gospels, but Luke adds some that are in your notes there, which are unique to him. And that's often hard to spot in English translation, but he's using that word saved, healed, delivered, restored, kind of made full really is the idea. And that is a, a pointer to the fact that salvation is bigger than just forgiveness of sins, as we might think of it. It's this thing of restoration of everything that has been broken. But salvation is linked to forgiveness of sins in Luke. We've seen that in the words of Zechariah. Uh, we see that in chapter 7, when the sinful woman comes and anoints Jesus. And he says at the end, your faith has saved you, having just told us that her sins have been forgiven. There's no healing that takes place. Clearly, this salvation is about the forgiveness of sins. And there are several places in the gospel where Jesus uh, where Luke adds reference to salvation that aren't found in comparable places in Mark. And another stress that this salvation is for all nations, and then that salvation is especially for those who are, as um, is put in chapter 19, lost, for those who are disadvantaged, for those who are outcasts in society. And that statement, Jesus came to seek and save the lost, comes at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, which very much illustrates for us Jesus' heart and focus in Luke. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. Tax collectors were hated and ostracised in Jewish society at the time for many reasons. For one, they worked for Rome, the enemy, so they're on the side of the bad guys. Um, they were the people taking, obviously, money, often very high taxes, taking a lot of money. And then to make it worse, they often actually took more than they were meant to. So they were also dishonest um, and they were um, taking more money even than they should. So, even though they'd be quite well off uh, in money terms, they were very much socially at the bottom of the pile, hated by everyone around them. But Jesus sees Zacchaeus, calls him and says that he must eat with him. And the people around, who in Luke's context are probably the religious authorities, grumble because they don't think that a guy like Zacchaeus is worthy of dining with Jesus. But after dining with Jesus, Zacchaeus has a total change of heart. He says he's going to give much of his wealth to the poor, He's going to pay back what he's done. He's going to do that fourfold. He's going even further than he has to, in a sense, to put things right. Jesus associates in Luke with sinners, with the people who were considered worse in society and the outcasts, but very much also calls them to repentance. And Zacchaeus is a powerful demonstration of repentance, that turning of heart, which leads to a turning of uh, actions as well. And Jesus actually says at the end of this story in uh, verse 9 that, Zacchaeus' repentance shows that he is a true son of Abraham. And as a true son of Abraham, he will receive salvation. 
And he ends the story by explaining it with this statement, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He's saying the religious authorities shouldn't be surprised, they shouldn't be indignant at what Jesus is doing, because in uh, saving Zacchaeus, he's doing exactly what he's come to do. He's fulfilling his mission. And throughout Luke, there are several examples of the lost. And of course, Luke would say, rightly, that we are all lost to start with, but he has a particular focus on the disadvantaged, on society's outcasts. And there are at least four groups into which those fall. One of those is women, who in the ancient world, I'm afraid, were not society's outcasts so much, but were considerably disadvantaged compared to men. But Luke makes women quite prominent in his gospel, much more so than in the other um, four. John has a bit, but more so even than him. Women receive healings and miracles. There's the woman who anoints Jesus, who's compared with Simon the Pharisee and his friends who are all men in a very positive light. So she's the good example of the story. They are the bad example, as it were. He also has named followers of Jesus, who in chapter 8 we're shown are actually involved in funding the mission of Jesus. And they're also very prominent in the passion narratives as well. And when he encourages, with Martha and Mary, and when he encourages a woman to sit at his feet and learn, he's encouraging a woman actually to do a man's thing. Women didn't sit at the feet of rabbis and learn. So he is elevating, in a sense, the status of women by saying they can too do that as well as men. Then there's the people of all sorts of different types who would be outcasts in society. Women would fall in that um, category to some extent. Those who are considered great sinners, so the woman who anoints Jesus, we don't actually know what she's done, but certainly she's thought of as very sinful. Tax collectors such as Zacchaeus. And we see this not just in who Jesus interacts with, but also with the parables uh, he uses and the characters in there. So things like the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the audience are expecting the Pharisee to be the one who is a good, holy, upright man who God likes. But remember, the key point of parables is often when they subvert our expectations. And actually, it's the penitent sinner who, even though he's been a terrible guy, actually recognises his need for salvation, who receives it. And then the persistent widow, which is a, a parable about prayer. But again, Jesus has chosen one of the... Uh, most disadvantaged people in society, a widow, a very vulnerable person in society, to be a positive example. Uh, in Luke, Jesus talks a lot about the uh, material poor, there's a material poverty, that reading in the synagogue talks about bringing good news to the poor. He commands believers to give to the poor. He praises in this gospel alone, I think, the widow's offering, the widow who comes and gives very little, but to her what is an awful lot. It's not so much that he sees spiritual value in being poverty. He's not saying you should take a, you know, a, a pledge to poverty, as some monastic communities have done since. But he's saying, actually, God has such a heart of compassion for those who are materially poor. And also he's recognising that it is the, those of humble estate who are more ready to respond to God. As we saw in the infancy narratives, actually those who are proud are not likely to turn their hearts to God and say, I need salvation from you. But Jesus knows actually those who are very little are very likely to respond to him in the right way. And he pairs that with teaching about the dangers of wealth. And there's a lot of teaching in Luke about money and possessions and how to handle them. And the fourth group of those who would be uh, examples of the lost and outcast in Luke are Gentiles and Samaritans. People who are much disliked by the Jews and not currently included in the covenant are nevertheless blessed by Jesus. He uses them as positive role models, things like the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, and he talks about those two examples we looked at of Gentiles in the Old Testament who do receive God's blessing. And when at the end of the gospel he calls the disciples to go to proclaim, proclaim uh, repentance and forgiveness, it is to all nations. And of course in Acts it becomes a huge theme that the gospel is not just for Jews, but it's going first to Samaria and the Samaritans in Acts 8, 
and then out to the Gentiles, to Cornelius and beyond. That's, in a sense, Luke's key ideas about Jesus. And then his key ideas about us or how to follow Jesus, I've termed the Christian life. He takes a different stress from Mark. So if you were here for the week on Mark, Mark very much stresses discipleship. It's following Jesus on the path of suffering, of carrying a cross. It's losing your life in order to gain your life, um, choosing to lose your, you lose your life in order to save it. Luke does preserve that teaching, but actually has some bigger uh, emphases about different elements of Christian life, of which I think we've got three down here. One is the Holy Spirit. We've already seen the Holy Spirit is really key in the infancy narratives. Uh, and of course, he's really key in the uh, Acts of the Apostles, which some people say should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because it's all about what he, the Holy Spirit, is doing. We see it, infancy narrative, we see it when Jesus starts his ministry. There's lots of references to Jesus doing things uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And also the Holy Spirit becomes much more prominent in this gospel, in the teaching of Jesus. And as we said in the infancy narrative, there's two reasons. One, this Holy Spirit focus shows that this is the new age of the Holy Spirit breaking in, the age to come is coming to earth. And the other is that he's laying a platform, as it were, for acts. He knows the Holy Spirit is vital to Christian living. And so he's showing how that's rooted in the ministry of Jesus uh, and in the teaching of Jesus. Luke also emphasises prayer. Again, he knows it's going to be prominent in Acts. He knows the only way the church would advance is through prayer. And on several occasions in Acts, when there's a big problem, they don't panic, they don't have a meeting, they just get together and they pray and wait for God to act. Jesus prays on nine occasions in this gospel, and a whole seven of these are completely unique to Luke's gospel. They're things he's added in to show Jesus praying. He also records more of Jesus' teaching on prayer than any of the other gospels do, and has encouragements directly to us to pray. And the last one, this is one of the reasons I really like Luke's gospel, is the themes of joy and praise. Luke is an incredibly joyful gospel. We've already seen that in those initial songs, the initial reactions uh, to the coming of Jesus in the infancy narrative. There's lots of occurrences of the word joy. The gospel ends, the very last words are about a great joy being expressed by the disciples in the temple in Jerusalem. And it's said in several places that the response to being sought and being saved by Jesus should be joy. So think of the parables of chapter 15 of the lost coin and the lost lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost uh, the prodigal son, the lost son, they're all finished. The point is that there should be great joy, as there is great joy in heaven, there should be great joy among people when people um, are saved. So Luke wants us to see that the Holy Spirit and prayer and joy and praise are vital aspects of Christian life, and that they are rooted in Jesus, what he was like, what he did, and what he taught. As a whistle-stop tour then of the middle of Luke, and we're a bit behind time, but I do want us to do the passion narrative because it's a really interesting insight into what Luke's doing and what Luke wants us to understand theologically. In many ways, Luke, in his passion narrative, so that's the whole story of Jesus in Jerusalem, the death uh, and resurrection, is very close to Matthew's and to Mark's. It, of all the parts of the gospel, the uh, kind of sequence of events is similar across all the three, and they have the most agreement. Whereas you read Matthew and you read Mark, and they're quite similar in kind of their tone and the feel, when we come to Luke, he's uh, recast almost, or kind of transposed the passion narrative into a different key to make some different theological emphases. And so this is an example where if we compare Luke and Mark, it can be quite helpful to remember that Luke has made use of Mark, and where Luke has made the deliberate change, it probably indicates there was a purpose for that, and he's trying to make some sort of theological statement through it. So in your next activity, 
I'm going to give you um, some of the synopses like you had in week one, which have in the three columns Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you want to look at the middle and right-hand columns and to compare how has Luke changed what he was reading in Mark and how does that reveal to us maybe what it is that he is thinking and wants us to get. Okay, I apologise I haven't had very long, but I'm eager to get to the resurrection because it's a bit sad if we don't finish with that. So let's uh, regather. We start with, when we start, a prayer in the garden. So that you guys at the back. So this is Jesus in Gethsemane. Um, although interestingly, Luke is the one gospel that doesn't call it Gethsemane. It just talks about... Um, of a garden, I think. It talks about a place on the Mount of Olives. What differences did you find when you compare Mark's account, which Luke had read, with what Luke himself actually writes? Good. Which fits, doesn't it, if we heard Luke cares a lot about prayer. If he's not having the disciples as passive people sitting watching prayer, actually they're encouraged to actually pray themselves. Really good. Anything else you noticed? How many... Excellent, yeah. In Mark, you have this threefold, Jesus going, uh, coming back and finding them asleep and telling them off and telling them to stay awake, going, coming back, they're asleep, going, coming back, they're asleep. In Luke, Luke only records one going and one coming back. And so the theme of the um, disciples abandoning Jesus is downplayed, but the theme of what Jesus is going through and Jesus praying and them praying is played up. So um, rather than making it a scene about the abandonment of Jesus, Luke has made it a scene about praying in times of difficulty. I guess. Um, oh, I thought I'd give you the answer to the next two questions. My apologies. What does this, what do these differences suggest about how Luke wants us to view Jesus in this scene? Actually, no, that one I haven't answered. Is, is Jesus himself different in this scene, did you feel, to how he is in Mark? He is, yeah, so he's very stressed. And Luke is the only one who talks about these drops, um, which are like blood. He said it didn't come blood, by the way. It says it becomes like blood, so it's just thick and gloopy. It doesn't actually sweat blood. Um, mm, please do. Absolutely. Yeah. So Luke adds this idea that the angels have come and have strengthened Jesus. I think he says Jesus is a bit calmer. So in Luke, it's Abba, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what you want, but what, sorry, not what I want, but you want. Whereas in Luke, it's Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He is calmer, I think. And one of the themes in Luke's passion narrative is Luke, uh, Jesus is much calmer and um, not self well, never say self-controlled, um, in control of his emotions, I guess, in Luke's account than he is in Mark's account. And we've said about the disciples, so I answered that one for you, that um, 
Though they do fail Jesus, they only do it once, and so it's downplayed the idea of the disciples abandoning Jesus. Uh, and then the trials before Pilate and Herod, so I'll these two groups at the front. Luke gives us more detail about the charges or accusations made by the religious leaders against Jesus. What are the charges and why might Luke have chosen to include them? Excellent. Any ideas why he might say these different things? Yeah. Good, yeah, yeah. Because he's highlighting what he says, but in Luke, he's casting it in Roman terms. So the, in Mark, it's Jewish terms. He's king of the Jews. This is a kind of Jewish backwater thing. Actually, if in Luke, if he is perverting the nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah King, Luke is bringing to the fore some of the challenges that Romans might have believed about what Jesus was doing. But as we'll see, there's a reason why he brings it up. Um, it's probably the next question. What does Luke stress about the response of Pilate when he's questioned Jesus? What's Pilate's verdict? In Mark, it says that he was amazed. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Amazement in Mark, but actually a really clear statement that this guy is innocent. I can't find any guilt within him. So he's being accused of being a violent revolutionary, you know, being anti-Roman Empire. Actually, though, the, the Roman governor has declared that is not true. Uh, and what do you think, why does Luke then send him to Herod as well as to uh, Pilate? You guys can answer this. Brilliant. The pilots already said he's innocent, but then Luke also wants to show it wasn't just the Roman authorities, but also the Jewish authorities knew that Jesus was innocent. And so he tells us about the trial before Herod, who was the Jewish king of the area, to show that both Jewish and Gentile authorities agreed that Jesus was not, in, was not guilty, he was innocent. And then this is a bit more nuanced. Did you gather, there's this whole thing again with Barabbas that comes in all the Gospels about whether they should release Jesus or release Bar Barabbas. Who in Luke's Gospel calls for Jesus to be killed and Barabbas released? And how does that compare with Mark's gospel? So this is verse. Excellent. Good. Yeah. In Mark, the chief priests stir up the crowd. In Mark, it is the crowd who eventually actually say, we want Barabbas, not Jesus. In Luke, there's no mention of the crowd. In Luke, it's only the religious authorities. And so Luke takes a slightly more positive view of the Jewish people, again, because he wants the Jewish people to respond to Jesus, the Messiah. So he doesn't blame the Jewish crowd in Jerusalem in general. He's specified it down. No, actually, it was the religious authorities who were the ones who asked for Barabbas to be released rather than asking for Jesus. And then why does Luke stress... I can't answer this, that Pilate asked the leaders what Jesus was guilty of three times. This is verse 22. Well, we haven't heard anything yet, but he says, a third time Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? Why is he stressing this was the third time this happens? Because he thought he was, he was innocent. Good, yeah, yeah. 
again, Luke's dressing, he asks him three whole times. Pilate is so convinced that Jesus is innocent that he asks him three times. Excellent, really good, thank you guys. Crucifixion, is that you? Two groups? What does Jesus say when he's crucified in Luke? Does he say that in the other Gospels? No. Again, this whole theme of forgiveness, of salvation, of even the worst in society um, coming out there. And then what's the difference? Again, this is quite a nuanced one in the mocking of Jesus while he's on the cross. Who's involved in this mocking and what might this indicate? This is... Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Excellent. Now, who does the mocking in Mark in Luke? Soldiers. Soldiers and leaders. The people, the bypassers or the stand, uh, bystanders in Luke, don't mock Jesus. Again, there's this positive or more positive portrayal of the Jewish people in general by omitting the idea of them rejecting Jesus, because Luke is worried if all the Jews rejected Jesus, why should any Jew in the early church respond to Jesus? So he omits that detail and says it was just the leaders and the soldiers who were mocking Jesus. And then why has Luke added this interaction between Jesus and these two criminals? He's another outcast in a sense of society, cast out the city, pins to a cross. Uh, again, the worst, the worst to be crucified is the worst form of execution in the ancient world. This guy must be really bad, and yet even he, uh, God will show mercy when his heart comes. And the fact that you have kind of you know, the one either side, these two contrasting responses, is a very powerful picture of what Luke has said, that actually there are some who will not turn their hearts, actually will not humble themselves um, and respond to the ask for salvation, but there are some that will whom uh, God will hear and whom God will respond to. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Fantastic, yeah. The authority of Jesus to forgive sins and to uh, give places in the kingdom. Yeah, really, really good. Mm. Excellent, yeah. Yet another declaration of Jesus' innocence comes from the guys on the cross. Really good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful, yeah, wonderful, wonderful demonstration of God's mercy. And then, just zooming through the death of Jesus on the cross over here, how do Jesus' last words in Mark and Luke compare? And why might Luke have chosen the words he chooses to record? Mark chooses the Mm-hmm. Now, the, one, the first one, Mark, one thing is that, if you like, is that like something to cry from the humanity of Jesus? My God, my God. And the right. other one is expressing the uh, divinity of Jesus. Father, I'm sure, in English. That's a bit like, like, 
um, but also in the every scenario there is an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, yeah, two things. There. I think I'm. Yeah, I, I'm nervous about splitting the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus, yeah. particularly on the cross, because that's the root of a lot of wrong thinking. Um, it's a mystery, but Jesus is completely fully God, completely fully man, right through the death and resurrection. That's really important for Orthodox faith. But you're right, there's this, this kind of, there is this very raw, very raw human pain kind of expression in Mark, this desperation, this very, um, yeah, desperation, I guess, but then a very kind of calm uh, committing in Luke. We've linked when we said in Gethsemane, in the garden, we've not so much got the desperation of Jesus. He's much more calm, actually, in the way he prays. And throughout, Jesus is presented very much as a, a kind of a model martyr in the ancient world, a man who's very peaceful, who controls his emotions, even in, you know, very difficult, very painful um, circumstances. I think what's just, what's just the thing that's just come straight to me is that all physical pain Jesus went through, Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's interesting when we read, you know, so the, the order was probably that Jesus said, my, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me first? And then just as he dies, he says, Father, into your hands I come in my spirit, which, again, is a reassurance. Jesus wasn't literally separated from the Father, hadn't turned his back on the Father. Again, what happens on the cross is in many ways a mystery, but actually holding them together is really important as well. How does the centurion who's standing next to the cross, how does his response differ in Mark and in Luke? Mm. Yeah, so Mark, from that climactic point in Mark's Gospel, this truly is the Son of God as Jesus dies. In Luke, he, the declaration is this guy is innocent. Actually, it's a bad translation. Actually, the word is righteous. This man is righteous, which does mean innocent, but actually means a lot more as well. And why might Luke have chosen to record those words? Okay, yeah, and then goes on, yeah. I think that would work well if Luke then makes Jesus as the Son of God a big theme in the resurrection, but he doesn't, unfortunately. So nice try. So you see how that makes sense if he's kind of pausing, I'm going to say this later, so I don't need to say it now, which is not so much what he does. To say he's righteous, which is what he says is not, not innocent, righteousness is very similar and actually bigger than innocence, but it fits with this whole theme we've had of Pilate saying three times that Jesus is innocent, the man on the cross saying that Jesus is innocent, even the guy standing next to him who crucified him declares, Actually, this guy was innocent. Romans, listen up. This guy is not a violent revolutionary. These people do not deserve execution in Rome at the time. And then who were the witnesses of the death of Jesus in Luke? And how do they respond? And how is that different from Mark's gospel? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and the women as well, verse 55. So yeah, Mark just has some women standing looking. Jesus has, uh, Luke has acquaintances, maybe the disciples. Again, as we saw in the garden, Jesus is less abandoned in Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke is trying to be 
more positive about the fact that people did kind of stayed at a distance, but did um, kind of stay there and kind of stay supporting him. Right bit. And also the people, we don't hear the response of the crowd in Mark, but in Luke's gospel, the crowd are there. Uh, they see what's taking place. They return home. They beat their breasts. Luke is saying, look, these Jews realised they'd made a mistake. Therefore, Jews after Jesus, what do you think of this guy? Maybe actually he shouldn't have been crucified. Maybe actually he is who he said he was. We're overrunning. Sorry, can we do five minutes on the resurrection? Because it's much nicer to end the resurrection than it is to end with the death of Jesus. Uh, Luke has quite a chunky resurrection account, more so than Matthew. There are four different parts to it. And the key thing in each one, which I'll put out, is the idea of interpretation. He has the story of the empty tomb, right at Mark's. He has the road to Emmaus, which is where Jesus joins this pair walking out of the city of Jerusalem to Emmaus, who don't understand what's going on, but Jesus opens their minds by uh, interpreting the Old Testament scriptures to them. And then Jesus appears to the disciples still on Easter Sunday in uh, the upper room, as John will tell us, um, in Jerusalem. And in each thing, the, Luke, the thing that Luke is stressing is that to understand what's just happened, to understand the death of Jesus, to understand the resurrection of Jesus, you've got to interpret it through the lens of the Old Testament and the lens of Jesus' words. So at the empty tomb, the angels, there are two angels, one of whom speaks, he tells the woman, you know, this, don't be surprised, this is what he told you back in Galilee, that he would suffer, that he'd die, that on the third day he'd be raised again. And Luke deliberately points out the fact that they remembered Jesus' words. He's trying to say, don't interpret this kind of in a vacuum. You've got to interpret it in light of what Jesus said would happen. Remember, no one expected a suffering Messiah. No one expected the singular resurrection in the middle of history. We've got to have some help to interpret it. And then, of course, the whole narrative about Emmaus is about interpreting because these guys are really upset. They thought Jesus was the one to save them and rescue them and bring um, the redemption of Israel. And yet now he's died. Some people say the tomb was empty, they think, but... Actually, nothing has happened. But then Jesus comes and he says, haven't you remembered what's in the law and the prophets and the writings? What's in the Old Testament? How it said that the Messiah must suffer, but that he'd be uh, raised again. And he interprets for them the Old Testament. I don't think that means he took a load of proof texts and said, oh, that was Jesus, that was Jesus. He says he interpreted in the whole or all the scriptures. I think Jesus showed them that story we looked at in week two. The fact that the story is working up to a climax and Jesus comes as the climax to that story. So he's saying you can't understand what's happened without what Jesus has said and without the Old Testament. And then we come to Jesus appearing to the disciples in Jerusalem in verses 36 to 49. And again, I think he brings up um, both things here. He states about his earlier words, verse 34. He says you've got to interpret it through this. And he says that what the Old Testament said, again, the Messiah would suffer would die, would be raised again after three days. He says you've got to understand it in view of this. But in this uh, uh, little scene, he adds another bit the Old Testament said, which was that there was going to be a proclamation after this that would go to all the nations, which is a strong theme in the Old Testament, that actually the blessing of God is going to go out to all the nations. And it's the proclamation of the repentance of forgiveness uh, and of sins, which does importantly... uh, of repentance and forgiveness of the sins, which does show that even though Luke is very hot on the resurrection and the ascension, he does interpret Jesus' death as atoning, as Jesus dying in the place of and paying the price for people's sins. And then he ends with the ascension, the last few verses. Luke doesn't actually tell us when this takes place. The first three all happen on Easter Sunday. He says nothing about the time, but Acts will tell us, because they both tell this story over Acts. There was a 40-day gap in between. Jesus leads them out towards Bethany, which is on the south side of the Mount of Olives. And as he stands there blessing them, he's taking up to heaven. And this is the point at which the disciples finally realise who Jesus is. 
Remember, Mark's Gospel, Jesus dies on the cross. Behold, this really is the Son of God. That's the moment. In Luke's Gospel, maybe this is more the moment because this is the first place where the disciples actually worship Jesus. The other Gospels have them worshipping him earlier. This is the first place that Luke recalls disciples worshipping Jesus. As they see him ascend to heaven, they realise what has happened. They return to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the Gospel started, uh, Zechariah in the temple. And it's that city that's been central throughout all that journey to Jerusalem and all the events that have happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus has told them that it's from Jerusalem that their mission is to start because that's where the Holy Spirit is going to come to to them. Luke ends his Gospels with the disciples praising God, filled with great joy in the temple, just as the Gospel has started in the temple. But whereas at the start of the Gospel, the characters are there involved in the regular systems of sacrifices, all the old covenant stuff that had to happen in the temple, now the disciples are there praising God. No mention of sacrifices. Jesus, just as he promised at the Last Supper in Luke 22, has come as the one who institutes a new covenant. They're still in the temple, but now they're praising God, not sacrificing, because Jesus had paid the ultimate price and been the ultimate sacrifice. Next week, we will come to John's Gospel, which is very different, as you'll know, um, but a really, really, well, they're all really good, but a really good one. Um, and we'll do a week on that. Do send me questions for the final week, as I said. We'll be same place, same time next week in here.